Amen. Thank you, Pastor Todd. Another wonderful, helpful sermon. Good morning, everyone. If uh, parents have any kids up through fifth grade and you'd like them to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now, feel free to keep them here, of course. But if you'd like to use that, there'll be some volunteers out on the patio ready to uh, teach them. And um, as Todd prayed, everybody else will be in Ecclesiastes again today. So you could turn with me to chapter 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a, a blue one that looks like this. And in those Bibles, we are on page uh, 320. Page 320. If you're new with us, just welcome. Uh, my name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege this morning uh, to share with you from the Scriptures. Mike uh, preached last week, did a fabulous job. Thank you, brother, for a faithful treatment of this important passage. A lot of people could uh, go to church their entire lives and never hear the book of Ecclesiastes touched in a public forum like this. The reason for that is uh, it is an exceptionally difficult book, and um, it is not, uh, at first glance, at first reading, uh, it's not uplifting. In fact, it's week after week after week, or chapter after chapter, solemn, uh, somber, serious, depressing. And uh, it's not until the very end, in fact, that a solution is given to the problems that the preacher raises. But uh, you keep coming back week after week. So praise God. And uh, I hope that it's helpful. We hit today what is probably um, one of two of the most difficult texts uh, throughout the book. So chapter 7, the last half, and chapter 10 are exceedingly difficult. There's a few verses that you're going to raise your eyebrows at, and uh, we'll just do the best we can this morning to try to uh, cover what they say. But I hope this will really be a, the beginnings of conversations you have about these passages, and we'll spill out into the week as you visit with one another. When I was a senior in high school, uh, my youth pastor was driving north on a major highway in Texas. He and his wife, they were both in their mid-20s, had been down to Texas to uh, see family for her 25th birthday, and they were traveling back north to go to Oklahoma, where I was living at the time. Uh, a drunk driver who had already served time for a DUI struck their car from behind, knocking it into the short little median and across that median into oncoming traffic. Another car headed the other way, struck theirs going full speed, and it literally split their car into two pieces. He was thrown 90 feet in the air and landed face first in the road. Michelle, his wife, was killed. The driver of the oncoming car was killed. The drunk driver, on the other hand, got off without a scratch. In fact, he didn't even stop. He just simply drove his car home and went inside. Three uh, law-abiding citizens died that day. Two of them were young. They'd only been married a few years. They were serving the Lord, doing really great, important ministry. 
and their whole lives, as far as they knew, still lay ahead of them, while the drunk drove home without injury. Welcome to life in a fallen world, what Ecclesiastes calls life under the sun. Sometimes, sorry, this is not sticking. I turned 45 this week, maybe my ears got bigger. (laughs) Sometimes, law abiders reap the consequences of lawbreakers. Sometimes, the godly die young while the ungodly live into old age. Sometimes, the righteous seem to have difficulty at every turn while the unrighteous appear to have rather endless ease. It's not supposed to be like that. This isn't the world that was created to be like this. As the preacher of Ecclesiastes sought to discover if there's any gain in life, inevitably, he bumped up against this very conundrum. The conundrum revealed that day in that accident. That youth pastor um, couldn't bear to go home because all he'd known in the town we lived in was uh, life with his wife, and so he came home to live with us. He took my room, and I slept on the couch. And I'll never forget, as uh, we sat at the dinner table, as cards after card after card after card came in, Uh, Most of them quoting uh, a verse in Romans. Can you guess what verse? Romans 8, 28. And I'll never forget him saying, uh, sure, God causes all things to work for good, but you're the one still with a spouse. It's not the verse I needed to hear right now. Listen to how the preacher of Ecclesiastes saw this conundrum. Verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. By this point, the preacher had lived long enough to witness a most troubling aspect of reality. Life under the sun is painful, and being a righteous person, in other words, being somebody who's seeking to follow God and obey God, being a righteous person does not prevent or protect you from pain. In fact, there will be times when the unrighteous will experience less of it and you will experience more of it. If you've spent much time in the Bible, you've seen this reality played out across the pages of the Scriptures. In fact, you don't have to go past the very first family. Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. The unrighteous son, in his jealousy, murdered the righteous son. Brother against brother. The very first pair of brothers. The one doing the right thing died while the one doing evil lived. 
And we're only a few pages into the Bible by that point. Perhaps you've, perhaps you've experienced this phenomenon as well. Uh, a high school senior on a one-night stand gets pregnant and has an abortion, while a couple who saved themselves sexually for marriage struggles with infertility for years and years and years. It shouldn't be like that. COVID takes the life of a man in his 20s who was careful, while uh, a 60-year-old caught up in the view that there is no COVID, it's just a hoax, doesn't even catch a common cold. The person who won't fudge the sales figures at work to deceive investors doesn't progress, while the unethical worker gets promoted. It shouldn't be like this. But that doesn't matter all that much, because that's how it is. This is the real world we live in. You can stick your head in the sand if you want, but all you're going to get is a face full of sand. Everything inside us grieves over these types of situations. We know intuitively something is wrong. Whether observed from afar or experienced personally, these painful paradoxes beg the question, if following God does not result in us having it at least a little bit easier than people who don't follow God, then why bother? If godliness doesn't equal the gain of a little bit less suffering, then what's the point of godliness? Why not just focus on enjoying life and doing whatever you want to do? If godliness yields no gain over the ungodly, what's the point? This is an issue often dealt with in the Bible, and inevitably it has to come up in Ecclesiastes. But it's not only in Ecclesiastes. In fact, my very favorite psalm is about this. After describing at great length the perceived easiness of the unrighteous and the difficulty of the righteous, the psalmist in Psalm 73 says this, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease they increase in riches, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent, for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning." Friend, if you've not fought against drawing a similar conclusion, it's likely because you've just not lived long enough yet to experience something really, really awful. And you will. Do you see now why people don't preach Ecclesiastes? The painful paradoxes that lead to these difficult questions are, are so common and yet so often unspoken. If you have felt as you've come here over the years or in some other church to worship that you are the only one in the room, 
who has some questions that you're embarrassed to voice, then at least know today that you're not alone. The preacher himself in Ecclesiastes asked them out loud. And God can handle it. Guess what? He already knew what you were thinking anyway. Now, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes witnessed this paradox for himself, he reached what I think is perhaps one of the most shocking conclusions in the entire book. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18. Here's his solution to this conundrum. Be not overly righteous, and don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Look around, the preacher says, and you'll see what I see. Sometimes the righteous die young and the unrighteous live long. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. So in light of this painful paradox, he says, don't be too righteous and don't be too wicked. Take the middle road. I told my wife, we may need to start getting a resume ready. <laughs> now, I've got to shoot straight with you. This is an incredibly bizarre conclusion. I have never read anything else like it anywhere in the Bible. In fact, much of the last week, I was trying to convince myself that can't be what it actually means, but it does. In fact, it's the point of the whole, the whole passage. Let me see if I could summarize it like this. Because life in this fallen world is full of painful paradoxes, those who fear God must avoid the extremes of super-righteousness and super-wickedness. I think that's exactly what he's saying. Now, before you think I've gone bonkers in my old age, give me a few minutes to try to explain. And I think what he means you're going to find helpful. As I do so, would you keep two questions in your mind? Maybe you'd like to jot them down if you're a note taker. When we experience hardships, all right, when you're going through the normal stuff of life and you hit something unexpected and difficult, should you try harder to obey God more so as to prevent that happening in the future? Or should you just give up and do whatever you want because you weren't able to prevent that hard thing anyway? That's the conundrum the preacher's grappling with. Should I become even more righteous? Because maybe that would keep me from suffering. Or does it not matter anyway, and should I just go and have a good time? Those seem to be the natural reactions when undeserved pain comes knocking on your front door. Don't they? But the preacher's solution is to do neither. 
He says, don't go down either one of those paths. First, let's think about this notion of super-righteousness. Yes, I know that's not a word, but it communicates, doesn't it? Verse 16 instructs us not to be overly righteous or wise. That doesn't seem like it's possible, does it? I mean, can you be too righteous or have too much wisdom? Apparently, yes. Christian, let's say you ask a godly gal out on a date. And before you ask her, you pray about it. You get counsel from older men. You search your heart to make sure you appreciate her love for God, not just her looks. Every bit of counsel you can find confirms this is a godly gal. You should ask her out. And so one day you finally get the guts up and she says no. (laughs) Now you might respond to that by believing she said no because of some sin in your life. You might respond by remembering a year ago I asked a gal out and I didn't care about her walk with God. I didn't care about her personality. I only cared about her body. And she also said no. But maybe the fact that I asked her and that my list of priorities was all out of order, maybe God's punishing me. Maybe that's why this new gal said no, even though I asked for the right reasons. So you become more aggressive in your religiosity. You decide to swear off women altogether. I'm only going to have friends who are men. I'm only going to spend time with men. I'm only going to call men. I'm only going to text men. For the next two years, I'm not even going to think about a woman. That is super righteousness. Surely if I am righteous enough, the next gal will be the one that says yes because God will have seen my righteousness. Or here's another scenario. Your oldest child hits ninth grade and after a lifetime thus far of always expressing belief in God, she now says she doesn't believe Jesus exists. She hears at school of the quote-unquote oppression that Christianity causes and that the Bible's full of errors and that there's no evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And so overnight, she refuses to come to anything at church and takes up a host of behaviors that you find troubling. Now, obviously, you're heartbroken for your child. But ninth grade stretches to 10th grade, stretches to 11th grade, stretches to 12th grade, and as you think about her leaving the house with no belief in God, you're heartbroken. But you're not just heartbroken, you're also confused. Because all your life you'd heard, train up a child in the way he should go, and when the oldie won't depart from it. You did that to the very best of your ability, but she walked away. And so you conclude, based on an 
errant reading of the Bible. That's not what that verse means. Based on a sense that, well, it must be my fault. Then you decide to make sure your second and third children will not do the same. Your poor parenting and your lack of discipleship must have caused defection. And so you try even harder with the next two. You're convinced that if you just do all the right things, they will not go down the same path when they get older. And so you smother them with rules. And you create exorbitant expectations for a spiritual maturity that Frankly, you've not yet attained yourself, let alone placing that onto children. Surely that will guarantee they will continue in the faith. To these kinds of behaviors, Ecclesiastes says, not so fast. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be too wise. The preacher's point is, Righteous living does not obligate God to some particular outcome in this life. You don't have a transactional relationship with God. I don't do a lot of uh, premarital counseling because we've got a counselor on staff. It's a wonderful gift we have. But when I do it, I always tell couples, you cannot have a transactional marriage. It will not work. It's not laundry for sex. Do the laundry because you love her. Have sex with him because you love him. That's it. You can't relate to God with transactions. You can't get into the black. Such that God owes you. That's not how this works. In fact, I would say most of the time there is absolutely no correlation at all between your righteousness and whether or not you get cancer or your house gets broken into or your car dies on the way home today. A hyper-religiosity, a super-righteousness does not remove difficulties under the sun. Life in a fallen world will inevitably involve pain, tragedy, disappointment, whether you are godly or not. You cannot be so righteous that you will escape hardships under the sun. You can have the gift of righteousness from Jesus and have a Savior with you in the difficulty. But you cannot exceed a kind of righteousness that prevents you from the difficulty. So if super-righteousness doesn't work, then how about the opposite end of the spectrum? Asking the godly gal out for the right reasons didn't work. So why not just go to the bar and take home whoever will say yes? At least you won't be alone then. Uh, your, your discipline and hard work in parenting did not result in a child leaving the home loving Jesus. So why not just give up on God and church altogether? 
Well, to these, the preacher says in verse 17, don't be overly wicked. We might call this a super wickedness. If you experience the paradox of godliness not leading to worldly gain, the preacher said, don't go get a PhD in evil. Your master's is enough. (laughs) Church, there is a value to wisdom. There, there, There is a value to righteousness. And there are inevitable consequences for wickedness. But we must be careful in assuming that we get to tell God when and how Righteousness is to be rewarded and wickedness is to be punished. Those are not decisions that remain within our prerogative. Both occur on God's timeline. And God's timeline is very often, almost always, much, much, much slower than ours. Our focus should be on avoiding the extremes of super-righteousness and super-wickedness while we wait for God to act. While we wait, some of us will be tempted toward a hyper-religiosity to prevent bad things. Some of us will be tempted to just say, screw it, I'm going to go do whatever I want. Friend, I think it's important that you have a sense of which one you, you would lean toward. And that in your conversations with fellow believers, fellow members of this church, that those closest to you that you interact with the most, that they would have some sense of which way you would lean so that they can help you, pray for you, provide good godly accountability. Those who fear God must avoid both extremes. Now let's read on. Verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now these are important clarifications. uh, your, Your car has shocks on it. Those shocks are designed to help you not feel the gravity and depravity of your own driving, all right? (laughs) These verses are shocks for the previous ones. They they absorb the blow, if you will. Let me explain. The preacher is telling us that, first of all, there is tremendous value in wisdom. He's saying if you had 10 people in governmental positions of great power and authority... Stack those ten up against one wise nobody. That one wise nobody is better for the city. That one wise person in the end will get more accomplished. That's what he's saying. So he's not poo-pooing wisdom. Saying wisdom matters. Wisdom is important. Wisdom is profitable. Wisdom does not, though, mean you're spared from tragedy. And... When the preacher tells us not to be super wicked, he's not saying to sin in moderation. He doesn't mean a little bit of gossip is fine, 
He's not trying to say a second and third lustful look is not a big deal, but it's the fourth one that's bad. <laughs> that's obviously not his point. Verse 20 is there to remind us that we all sin. Even if we don't deliberately jump headlong into deplorable behavior later today, we will still sin. You will do something later today that is an affront to your Creator. So, don't set out to maximize how much you can do. Be content with the level of wickedness that's going to come out anyway. That's what he's saying. Now, for example, his example of it is in verses 21 and 22. He's saying, think of the issue of eavesdropping. Eavesdropping is unprofitable. Why? Well, because if you make it a habit, inevitably, you're going to hear somebody say something nasty about you. And it was not something you needed to hear. And you're going to get all turned about it. But here's the reality. When somebody else wasn't listening, you've said something nasty about them. Don't be so foolish as to think you can obey God enough to avoid pain in this world. You can't. Nor be so ignorant to think that deliberately going big with devious behavior won't eventually bring consequences. It will. There is enough sin we struggle with in everyday life. We need not add more to it. Again, the point of all of this is that we live in a world where things don't work like they ought to. And we should aim to live the normal Christian life through all the ups and downs that life will bring without falling prey when hardship comes to the temptations of super-righteousness or the temptations of super-wickedness. Instead, Ecclesiastes asserts to us the way is to live for God, live in awe of God, and let the chips fall where they may. Live with a reverence before Him, and whatever His sovereignty happens to serve up, get through it with Him and His people. Now, as the preacher contemplated these things, he remained without peace and satisfaction. Can you, can you see why? I mean, we're getting somewhere, but this isn't a point of resolution. Because people who adore God, who long for heaven, who sincerely seek every day, imperfectly, but sincerely, authentically, to live for Him, it is troubling when they face severe tragedy and people who are flippant and nasty toward the things of God appear to have it easier. 
That's not okay. And so the preacher, as he continued to contemplate these things, he remained without satisfaction. And so he continued his search for wisdom. He determined he would find it. I'm going to find a kind of wisdom that will resolve this issue such that I don't have to live with it anymore. It's the kind of wisdom Eve wanted when she bit into that fruit. Do you remember what she said or what what she was told? You will be like God. That's the kind of wisdom Ecclesiastes is seeking after. A wisdom that's above and beyond what we ought to have access to. So here is agony, verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Do you hear, do you hear, hear the word wisdom being used in a slightly different way than we normally think of it? Almost always the Bible uses the word wisdom in 100% positive ways. But there's a connotation here that this is a wisdom that's not all good. He's wanting something that's not his to be had. He means here that the painful paradoxes of life left him vexed to understand. Why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Is there any use at all to following God? How do I fix this? That's his thought process. Now very quickly, let me show you as he continued this search, four more things that he found. Number one, he found an example, he gives us an example of a kind of super wickedness to avoid. Verse 26, I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. There are people who deliberately try to entice us and convince us and talk us into evil. This is telling us to avoid them. This is the, if you've ever read through Proverbs, this is the classic uh, lady or Uh, female folly that's described in chapters 5, 6, and 7. A father telling his son, don't go down that road. That there are some women out there who will use you. Incidentally, of course, there are some men who will do the same. So he's saying, uh, watch out, because I found there is a real evil wickedness you just got to avoid. Number two, he also found that he couldn't find the ultimate answer. He found that he wasn't going to find what he was looking for. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. 
while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. He's saying, I'm beating my head against a wall. That's the second thing he found. Now, the third thing is what I warned you is going to ruffle your feathers, all right? He found righteousness is hard to find. And he's going to tell it to us in a most graphic way. Verse, the end of 28. One man among a thousand I found, but among a woman, among all these, I have not found. What's he say? Well, as the preacher reflected on life and this great search for understanding, he deliberately chose hyperbole to say that righteous people are incredibly rare. They're hard to find. He doesn't mean that there are actually zero righteous women in the world. Ecclesiastes may have been written by Solomon, and if so, the last chapter in the book of Solomon, uh, in the book of um, Proverbs, is all about a righteous woman. And he does say in that chapter, they're hard to find. I don't disagree with him. But he's not saying they don't exist. Incidentally, uh, we know from Kings that Solomon had literally 1,000 wives and concubines. A thousand. And chapter 11 tells us that they were his downfall. That many of them were foreigners who didn't follow the Israelite God and drew his heart into idol worship. So I think as he's looking around his home, he's seeing, I got a thousand women, none of them have been a prophet to me spiritually. And I got a thousand men, and there's one good one. He's saying righteous people are rare. They're hard to find. Number four, he found that ever since the garden, people are the ones to blame for the way things are. Verse 29, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Ever since the garden, people have been full of schemes. There are far more than 20 schemes. God made man upright. Mankind was created to image God, to enjoy life in His world, to have fellowship with Him and with each other. But they chose to seek a wisdom that wasn't theirs. They chose to disobey. And so they fell. God made us upright. So the fact that bad things happen isn't God's fault. They are 
the inevitable consequence of the cosmos rebelling against its creator. There's brokenness in this world because people chose and continue to choose to rebel. Now you have to be very, very, very careful connecting a particular sin to a particular hard outcome. Sometimes that's possible. If you drink yourself into a stupor every day, starting in your 20s, what is inevitably going to happen to you? You, you are going to get cirrhosis of the liver and die. You can connect those two things. But most things in life, you cannot and you shouldn't try. Brokenness exists in the world not because God is aloof or unkind, but because we seek out our schemes. And while we seek out our schemes, and that's a private, often a private sphere of life, God has been upfront about His plan. That's what the word schemes means. It means a plan. We've got our schemes, but God has His plan. He will not leave His people under the sun. Christ, the only truly righteous one, entered this broken world. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. One day, this Jesus, who is now over the Son, will re-enter physically under the Son in order to rescue all who have trusted Him. Until then, when crisis and tragedy and hardship and disappointment and disillusionment inevitably come, don't go the way of super-righteousness, nor the way of super-wickedness. Instead, trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Live every day in a reverential awe of God even when you do not understand everything about him. And be content with knowing there are some things we simply will not fully understand. And that's okay. Pray with me. Before I voice a prayer for us, I'd encourage you to pray for a moment on your own. Father, we pray you'd use a admittedly, at times, confusing passage. But in the end, 
once we've thought through it together carefully, it, it, it's actually immensely practical and helpful. Would you use your word, now heard, to bless, to encourage, to grant faith, to strengthen faith, to rescue some out of some super wickedness they've been in, to rebuke and humble some of those who have pursued super righteousness, and to help us live this life of faith together while we wait, even though questions remain. In Jesus' name, amen.